National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns, is brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check out their website at cybersecuritysummit.org for a list of their upcoming webinar series. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, and you've joined us for this edition of National Security This Week. We get together every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security. We're fortunate enough to be joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us learn more about national security challenges and opportunities. Occasionally, we're even joined by guests from overseas. We have a unique show for you today, and we'll be talking about Saudi Arabia, but from a number of different angles. Our two guests for today's show recently visited Saudi Arabia as guests of the Middle East Policy Council, and they were given a chance to see many aspects of Saudi governance and society in action. Our first guest is Hamdullah Bejar. I think I have that right. Uh, Hamdullah Bejar is a doctoral candidate at the Institute of Arab and Islamic Studies at the University of Exeter. His research focuses on the identity politics of the Gulf region to include the concepts of Orientalism, colonialism, and post-colonialism. Before joining Exeter, Hamdullah was a graduate student at the Center for Middle Eastern Studies at Harvard University, and he earned a Bachelor of Arts in International Relations from Abantazet Baisal University back in 2013. Recently, Hamdullah Bejar was named to the Middle East Policy Council's 40 Under 40 cohort for 2023. Our second guest has been on the show once before. Uh, Nick Hayen is the Marketing and Communications Manager for Global Minnesota. He was also the 2022 president of the Minnesota International NGO Network, and he's a member of the U.S. Global Leadership Coalition's Minnesota Advisory Committee. His personal blog and podcast project, The Orientalist Express, seeks to educate all people from Amer- about American fol- foreign policy by making international issues exciting and relevant. Nick Hayen originally grew up in the small town of Mitchell, South Dakota, and completed his undergraduate degree in world history from the South Dakota State University. And after completing a master's degree in Middle East history with an emphasis on international relations from the University of Utah, Nick and his wife Hannah moved to Minnesota in 2014. Hamdullah Bejar, welcome to National Security This Week. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Uh, what time uh, is it over in the UK right now? It's 3 p.m. I am joining you from Exeter on, from my campus. It's a pleasure to be with you. All right. And Nick Hayen, welcome back to the show. Thanks, John. It's great to be here again. All right. So we have a lot to talk about today. Uh, I, I'm really excited to hear about your, uh, your firsthand uh, visit to, uh, to Saudi Arabia, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Uh, but let me begin by asking both of you how you managed to get tied into this eye-opening uh, visit uh, to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. What was the catalyst for that trip? And could you give us a bit of a rundown on the travel itinerary? And, and Hamdal, let's start with you. Uh, well, the program, as you mentioned, was uh, made by a Middle East Police Council and co-sponsored by Saudi Gateway uh, with their cooperation, uh, a, cooperation a cooperation that normally uh, do this kind of trip with uh, undergrad students, actually. We were the first uh, cohort that was uh, like profession- with professionals and uh, like older generations, let's say. So uh, for, <laughs> for me... Uh, uh, it was not my first time to the region, but w- was first time to Saudi Arabia. Like I have been to uh, the region, like mostly to the UAE and Qatar and Oman for my fieldworks uh, between like 2018 to 2020. Uh, and 
like uh, despite I have never been to the Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia has always been one of the themes in my research. In our like in general, for the when we when we speak about the Gulf in general, the, uh, like you cannot ignore Saudi Arabia. Mm. So uh, I think for me the trip was important to see whether or not like the image of the Saudi Arabia fits the reality that we, we are having in academic and political analysis discourses. So uh, I. For me, I like I considered it as an extension of my fieldwork, if if I have to be honest with you. So uh, on one side, like uh, I wanted to see uh, like many Gulfi, many Khalidji actually consider Saudi Arabia as a big brother, uh, both as a like as a cultural aspect and with an with a small connotation of Orwellian big brother. Uh, <laughs> so it was it was it was a moment for me to to see how like this. Uh, to these two different meanings of Big Brother play in the region. Uh, yeah. Uh. Okay. Yeah, and I, I think for me it was a very much kind of a similar story. Of I'd, I'd never uh, spent significant time in the Middle East outside of one day in Istanbul, which I know doesn't necessarily count as you know, true experience. Um, so despite having uh, studied this region and Saudi Arabia specifically for so long, it was nice to finally have some significant time there. Um, so. I actually originally interned with the Middle East Policy Council uh, about eight years ago uh, and then reconnected with them through this 40 Under 40 uh, Rising Leaders program. And so we spent about 12 days in Saudi Arabia as part of a cultural and educational outreach program. And so while we were there, we spent a few days in the capital, Riyadh. Uh, then we went to Demam to visit Saudi Aramco, then Al-Ula, which is sort of an old cultural heritage site. And then we finished the trip in Jeddah with some stops in places like the uh, King Abdullah University of Science and Technology and the King Abdullah Economic City. And so while we were there, they uh, also provided us with some panel discussions uh, featuring, I believe it was Dr. Mansour Al-Marzuki, who is actually the director of the Center for Strategic Studies there, and Hoda Al-Halasi, who is one of the first women appointed to the Shura Council. So we got quite a bit of experience with both the cultural side of things and the uh, you know, social political side of things as well. So, Nick, it's probably important. The Middle East Policy Council, What it, what is that organization? Can you sort of clarify that for our listeners a bit? Yeah. So Middle East Policy Council is a D.C.-based think tank that focuses specifically on, of course, the Middle East and Middle East-U.S. Uh, relations. Uh, so they have several conferences on Capitol Hill every year. And they also produce uh, sort of a quarterly digest of uh, various topics on the Middle East. So uh, that was one of the two internships I did in D.C. about eight or nine years ago. Uh, And so it was really nice to reconnect with that. Now they have this 40 under 40 rising leaders program that they do every year. Uh, So for the for both of you, what what surprised you on this trip? Uh, Maybe maybe two or three things you saw which you didn't expect to see. Uh, things that really opened your eyes to the politics, the economics, or even the security aspects inside Saudi Arabia, uh, things that maybe you didn't know about before or or, or maybe challenged your, your assumptions. Uh, I think all of us, <laughs> and me, I, I will freely admit to this, we make assumptions about the world every single day. Uh, and But when our assumptions are upended by facts or by events, especially when we can personally witness something for ourselves, hopefully we are forced to reevaluate uh, our assumptions. 
I, I, me personally, I'm just going to say this. I wish more Americans uh, would travel abroad. Uh, every time I've done so for my 25 years in military service or on the rare vacation, uh, I've always come away with a far better understanding of other people and other cultures. Uh, what can each of you tell us about your experience in Saudi Arabia along these lines? Maybe two or three things. And Hamda, let's start with you. What surprised me most, or I don't know if it's considered a surprise, but one thing I was really looking for and found my answer was to see the level of changes and the historicity of these changes. Like now, we, uh, when we talk about Saudi, about the changes, we mostly collect them like under the uh, name of uh, reforms, Vision 2030, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. So I was really looking for an answer, like, uh, first of all, like, do we have reforms in, on the ground? And second of all, are they very recent? Uh, and I think, like, uh, I don't know, maybe uh, the, the, uh, they, they, were, they were fastened, but I, I think I was surprised to see uh, that uh, these were, uh, like, these all reforms are continuation of their uh, national policy. Like, I can give you an example, uh, uh, and, like, you can imagine the history of the Uh, In one of the uh, panels, we were told that uh, King Abdullah Scholarship, which is uh, a program to provide tuition and stipends to the Saudis overseas, uh, they have like around half million students so far. So half million students like uh, studied abroad in the U.S. or in the U.K. And uh, I can relate to this. Like when I was in the U.S., I had so many friends so many Saudi friends from uh, coming with this particular scholarship. And when we were, we were having this kind of discussion a lot, like this was before Crown Prince was a Crown Prince. Uh, and they, they used to tell me, like, uh, this scholarship is not only about education, it's about liberalization of the country, it's about, like, uh, creating a human cap- capital, uh, like, uh, making the country more uh, sustainable in terms of human capital. Mm-hmm. And I think, like, uh even though like now they are branded in a different way in a more ambitious way uh i think uh like i was i don't want to call it surprise but like i think it has a history the these reforms has a history like with the with the oil money that they have they wanted to leave a footprint to the kingdom hmm. uh Another thing that surprised me was about the like extensive cultural projects that they uh, they are building. Uh, I think uh, Nick will also talk about this, but uh, like uh, two two different uh, projects are taking place. On one ha- on one hand, they are building like uh, cultural projects, which is directly about the Saudi family. The, uh, the they are like two three hundred centuries, like the Dria projects or the place where they were born. And, but at the same time, uh, we have seen a lot of like emphasis on pre-Islamic history uh, or also like the 100 or two first hundred of the prophet period. So I think this was one of the two things that I was surprised and like I, I wanted to bring them to the agenda. Okay. Yeah. Uh, very, very quickly for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio, and I'm your host, John Olson. 
Our guests today are Hamdullah Bejar and Nick Hayan, both of whom recently visited the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia on a trip organized by the Middle East Policy Council. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. You can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. And Nick, how about you? Two or three things that uh, that you saw on, on the trip that, that really uh, sort of surprised you. Yeah, I would definitely agree with Hamdullah, especially about the uh, embracing of the pre-Islamic past. Because, you know, for decades, Saudi's strict interpretation of Islam kind of ignored or tried to suppress anything that hinted at the world before Islam. You know, it was almost like the Prophet Muhammad, you know, started uh, the faith and then everything came after that. Uh, but now these relics are, and sites are being celebrated much more. Um, you know, granted, it's part of it's a little bit of a push just for tourism, but it was still <laughs> refreshing to see that embrace of the world that existed and that sort of celebration of previous cultures. Um, and then I would also just say the the social changes and the extent to which things are are vastly different than they were even a few years ago. You know, it's so much more than just allowing women to drive, which is the thing everyone thinks about. But uh, women no longer need to be veiled. They can go out without a chaperone. The religious police were essentially nowhere to be found. And people are free to mostly go about their business. They can go on dates now. They don't have to drive all the way to Bahrain just to go on a date with someone. Uh, you know, see movies, listen to music. Uh, still, you know, quite a ways to go from a quote unquote Western perspective of what you would think of a of, uh, free and open society, but still just dramatically different from what life was like even a few years ago. And and I think that's certainly worth, you know, celebrating. We we had uh, on the show here uh, Fahad Nazar, who's the spokesperson for the uh, the embassy of the of Saudi Arabia in Washington D.C. And he talked a little bit about those those changes. And I think one of the things that's a driving factor for that uh, is probably the uh, the demographics of Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, something like seventy five percent of the population is under the age of forty. Uh, did did the two yeah. of you witness that? I mean, was it a was it a really big population of younger people in the kingdom? Yeah, I, I certainly noticed uh, quite quite a few. Um, I, I think it was actually like seventy percent or under thirty or something like that. But yeah, just a substantial number of people are really in that younger demographic, and they are the ones who are really sort of pushing for this type of change. Uh, you know, it's of course not a democratic society necessarily, but. Um, you know, the, the people at the highest levels of government are watching that and being aware of that and thinking that uh, the vast majority of the society does want to um, sort of open up a little bit more and not be quite as, as close as previously. So I certainly noticed that on the trip. Hamdala, do you notice the same kind of thing, the demographics? Uh, yeah, I think uh, like with the demographics, I want to talk about like my experience with my Saudi friends too. Like I think in general, my Saudi friends, like mostly master and PhD students or graduates, uh, at least for now, I don't know what will happen like after five, ten years of power accumulation. They are very supportive to the government. Like I, I, when I say they support, I don't mean like 100% or in everything, but I think there is a great uh, popular support in these reforms. Like, uh, so I think the, the youth, for now at least, for like, currently speaking, I think they are, they are very dynamic and involved in the affairs okay. in the kingdom. So I, I, I've seen the itinerary. Uh, thank you uh, for sending that to me. That's very interesting. Uh, on your first night, you met with uh, His Royal Highness Prince uh, Turkey Al-Faisal, a very influential leader in the royal family. I looked him up uh, during that evening session. What did you learn from Prince Turkey Al-Faisal? Uh, Hamdallah, let's start with you. Uh, as you. As you have just said, 
Prince uh, Turkel Faisal is a very influential, like both in within the kingdom and we, uh, like in terms of U.S.-Saudi relations. He served as a U.S. ambassador, uh, Saudi ambassador for uh, U.S. Uh, what I realized with Turkel Faisal and in general with his family, uh, I I felt like two things. Like in addition to the uh, to his like uh, great attention to the U.S.-Saudi relations as. Uh, to my knowledge, or like I felt, I felt that like even Gate Awakening Saudi Arabia was partly sponsored by him. In addition to his uh, attention to his, uh, Saudi-U.S. relation, I felt like he his family is still very close to the current branch of the royal family. And the second thing I felt like I I real I think they are the in, intellectual part of the family. Like they they have these cultural programs. They 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 have a private university. They they, uh, they deal with uh, intellectual, educational, cultural programs. So for me, uh, uh, even the conversation, like it was more about his experience in the U.S., but more in terms of his soft power initiatives than hard power initiatives. Uh, yeah. Okay. And Nick? yeah. Yeah, and, and I think that um, that soft power really speaks to just how he he knows that that's really the best way to to get connected with the United States, and I think it shows the importance of the United States to Saudi Arabia and how much they really want to rehabilitate their image, uh, especially after the past few years. You know, I I did go into this trip wondering how much is it going to be sort of a PR campaign versus like an authentic you know view of the kingdom and. And I really came away thinking that there's it was much more authentic. You know, there was, of course, a little bit of flourishes here and there, as, as to be expected on this type of thing. But, uh, you know, there really is that authentic, genuine change. And, um, you know, as you know, of course, John, they uh, the Saudis have been working really hard at lobbying within the United States to promote things like Vision 2030 and their social changes. They've reached out to you. I know they've reached out to me. Um, and it seems like this this campaign is in some ways uh, the product of what Prince Turkey is, is doing to try to restore a better relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia. And I think that he is you know, one of the few people who really remains on good terms with almost everyone in the royal family. You know, he's he's very skilled at, at maintaining the, that positive atmosphere. And so you know, these educational projects uh, really show just how much they're focused on maintaining that that diplomacy with the United States. And so. I think it's really encouraging and, you know, we ought to lean into that if they have something to offer us on that, that realm, we ought to you know, lean in and embrace that a little bit. Uh, I do want to get into sort of the security, regional security challenges and opportunities uh, in a little bit, but uh, we would absolutely be remiss if we didn't discuss uh, one of the driving economic factors uh, for Saudi Arabia. Uh, I, I, I noticed that on your itinerary, you, you had a visit to Aramco. You mentioned it uh, in our uh, early discussions. What exactly is Aramco? How does it function as a holding of the kingdom? And what did you learn about the company during that visit? Uh, let's start with you this time, Nick. Yes. So uh, Saudi Aramco is, of course, the state-run oil company that is almost singularly responsible for the country's wealth and, and prosperity. Uh, you know, we all know, um, you know things like Saudi Arabia's true oil production capacity is, is a closely held secret since they like to throw that capacity around to change the global price of oil. Um, unfortunately, we actually didn't get to know too much about Aramco simply because of that those strict security measures. Ah. Uh, we had a visit <laughs> planned, but ultimately this was unfortunately cut short 
uh, the day of, so we didn't get too much of a tour. I'm not quite sure why. I have theories, but I won't share that on the radio. Uh, <laughs> on the plus side, that did give us some time uh, and some others to uh, hop over the King Fahad Causeway to Bahrain, since it's right there. Um, but we did get to discuss Saudi's moves towards diversifying their industries. Uh, you know, it's clear to me that they're they're starting to make some of these moves towards diversifying their internal energy. Uh, but I think the plan is really to keep relying on exporting petroleum for the rest of the world as long as it main as long as that main demand exists. Uh, I was, I guess, a little disappointed that they don't seem to be too interested in leading tomorrow's energy generation instead of maintaining yesterday's energy generation. Um, but I think that's one thing I want people to kind of take away from this trip is that Saudi Arabia and most of these other countries, they, they really do have their own interests to consider. And we need to remember that, you know, sure, we would like them in the United States to keep prices down to help with our own problems with things like inflation. But that hurts their bottom line, too. Right. So, you know, they're saying the right things when it comes to climate action. They're taking some steps towards that. But I don't think they're going to give that up entirely until it's no longer profitable. And Vision 2030 is meant to help offset some of that revenue, but I don't think it will replace that completely. And, you know, why would they drop such a profitable enterprise just because we in the United States keep saying, well, it's the right thing to do. Yes, we need to give them some incentives, though, to help help push that change. Yeah. And Hamdallah? Well, Aramco plays a central role in the kingdom. Like, even though they have the diversification programs, the diversification itself is, like, uh, through the Aramco's uh, vision. Like in every institution we have visited, you will see uh, the great emphasizes on Aramco, on the universities, like the university that they, they have a world-class programs. They are mostly the programs that they have, the research development within the Aramco or even the cultural projects. Like either Aramco is one of the sponsors or Aramco is like building the museum. Like when the day we visited Aramco, actually, uh, we were supposed to visit Aramco, but we uh, end up with their uh, like cultural place. It was like world-class museum, world-class exhibition, but it was made by Aramco or the the library that they had. I I, I don't know, like they have so many uh, world records uh, on uh, for the library. I don't remember them, but uh, it was made by the Aramco. Aramco still plays like uh, one of the most central role in the kingdom. Like even the, the the companies that they show as a success, for example, Sabik, the Saudi chemical manufacturing company, uh, like is owned by Aramco or like the, uh, the in the 2030s diversification, Aramco is still like the sole responsible for generating the money or generating the funds for these uh, all projects. So both of you have mentioned uh, that that the the kingdom is trying to diversify their economy a bit. Uh, our, our guests from the Saudi embassy in Washington, D.C. mentioned the same kind of thing. Uh, Aramco clearly has a, a huge <laughs> a huge stake in what is happening uh, in the kingdom on the science and technology side. I would tell you that I did a little more research into Aramco uh, to prepare for this show, and one of the things that they are working on, interestingly enough, is an algae-based fuel research program. Uh, did you hear about that at all while, while you were on that visit? And if not, that's okay. Uh, the idea behind I did, it was—I uh, was they... don't recall them mentioning that much. They did a little bit about uh, about uh, hydrogen generation and okay. like you know carbon capture, but uh, they didn't mention algae. Actually, that would have been interesting. 
Yeah, it was, they have a, uh, a whole thing on their website about the research that they're doing into algae-based fuels and, and the idea to scale up to a massive level of production. It's never going to come anywhere close to just pumping oil out of the ground and refining it because yeah. it's already been made by uh, you know, Mother Nature and history. Uh, but uh, but scaling it up is is one way to sort of diversify uh, what they're doing at Aramco, uh, and I know that you know with the science and technology research that they're doing at the different universities, uh, they're also expanding into into med- healthcare healthcare right. I mean, uh, did you did you hear about that while you were there? Uh, as far as the economy goes, the expanding uh, capabilities research into uh, health uh, health uh, technologies. They they did mention that a little bit, and that was one of the one of the reasons I was really excited to go to that trip and to talk about um, and to promote Minnesota a little bit. You know, through my role with Global Minnesota, that we want to uh, try to foster these business connections because, of course, healthcare is a really big scene here in Minnesota. And mm-hmm. as we look to hopefully win the World Expo bid in twenty twenty seven, which is going to be focused on healthcare specifically, uh, you know, that was also another um, really big connection that I was hoping to make, and I think I. I help to uh, bridge that gap a little bit because that's one of the areas that I know they have a lot to offer and we have a lot to offer. So it's certainly an easy partnership that we can all work together towards. Hamdala, anything else that you you noticed uh, with regards to the economy in Saudi Arabia? Uh, like I think uh, we can talk also about the 2030 or is it like uh, uh, early for uh, in in in. in in, in both our, in our everyday conversation and also in the panels that we had, we were we were 2030. The vision 2030 was something that we have talked a lot actually. Uh, I I don't know if Nick remembers. Like I I asked the question there, like the 2030. Uh, like as a researcher, I am very skeptical um, to this kind of visions. Like I know, like every company, every institution, every state, even every family should have a plan. But when we when we make them about the numbers, about the records, I think we banalize the issues. Like it becomes a big like, uh, and we pass, not only banalize the programs, we also pacifize the people. I think it doesn't have the entrepreneurship uh, spirits of the people. Like uh, they shift, they they make the people like sleep, wait in twenty thirty, everything will happen. Uh, and it doesn't happen. Like Turkey also had a similar vision. Like uh, it, it is this year actually, 2023. So the 100th century of the uh, anniversary of the republic. Uh, like the for 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 the brands they they built, like the first electric car, the first like local this that. Yes, but when it is about the numbers, the statistics, they don't. Uh, they are not very realistic, and there is no like. Uh, you cannot ask, uh, well, you promised us this, but it didn't happen because it requires an expertise to know whether or not actually they match the target. So when, uh, when, when, you, when you talk only about the Vision 2030, I feel like it postpones the present time to the future. Like I, I see a big problem, a big problem there. So I think I am a bit skeptical in general, to these visions or to these uh, programs. I don't know what me, me can yeah, say. I, yeah, I think um, th- they really wanted to get the point across that they're really open for this type of uh, external investment within the kingdom. And some of these programs, you know, some of this stuff kind of makes sense. There's certain areas that I know we could certainly you know, invest in. 
Uh, I'm a little more skeptical about some of these mega projects, uh, which they actually didn't show us too much of. Like we didn't go to Neom, you know, the new economic city. They didn't show us the line, that giant hundred mile long linear city, which I'm quite skeptical of that is actually going to work. Or the new, uh, the Mukab, which is just this huge cube shaped city. Uh, those I'm I'm not quite sure that you can really like force a particular design of a city. Uh, you know, there has to account for organic growth. And I don't think that those uh, projects necessarily do that. But, um, you know, some of the projects I think uh, make sense and are, are worth uh, taking a look at. Uh, some of the other ones, though, um, you know, might be a little bit too flashy for my taste. But o- overall, I I guess I would say, like, it's better to try something than nothing in this regard. You know, they are clearly uh, doing quite a bit of major economic investment in overhaul. And that's a good thing. But, um, yeah, some of the aspects might be a little bit too flashy for my taste. All right, we're going to take uh, just a short uh, break uh, to identify our sponsors. We'll be right back. National Security This Week is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. The Cybersecurity Summit brings together cyber experts from industry, academia, and all levels of government to explore challenges, solutions, and opportunities in the cyber arena. The three-day summit includes speakers, workshops, discussions about advancing a cyber career, and keynote addresses by top leaders from across the cyber community. Learn more at cybersecuritysummit.org. And we're back here at uh, National Security This Week with our guests, uh, Hamdala Bejar and uh, Nick Hayen. And uh, we're going to tap into the expertise that both of you have on Middle East uh, affairs, uh, if we could, in the second half of our show. Both of you are very familiar with what's happening around the Middle East region, and and with your trip to Saudi Arabia, I think you you probably saw some things, uh, heard some things that might have impacted your perspective on uh, what's happening uh, over in that part of the world. Uh, I definitely want to talk a little bit about uh, the situation in Yemen, but before we get there, uh, let's begin with the recent rapprochement between Saudi Arabia and Iran, a deal that was brokered essentially by China. Uh, what do each of you make of that deal, and what are the ramifications uh, for that deal for the region? Uh, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia has traditionally been a strong U.S. ally. I think you probably heard uh, while you were there that they still consider the U.S. a, a critical ally. Uh, and certainly the Saudi Arabia, the government, has been a, a buyer of U.S.-made military equipment for many, many years. Is there a shift happening wherein Saudi Arabia is now looking more towards China? As an important partner on the global stage, I mean, I've seen some really good press coverage of Xi Jinping and uh, the crown prince uh, together. Uh, what, what's your take on it? Let's, Hamdal, let's start with you. Well, very timely question, actually. Like the whole last two, three weeks, the whole foreign policy, the regional uh, news are about uh, stories from, from this particular deal. Uh, and this deal was considered by many Western experts as like the rise of China or the fall of U.S. hegemony in the Middle East in, for Saudi Arabia. Like Saudi Arabia has always been considered a very like one of the closest allies for the U.S., so, but I'm not sure actually about this, uh, is, if, if this is completely true. I think the role of China is a bit exaggerated in this particular deal. Like, I'm for sure, for fact, I know this uh, negotiation between Iran and Saudi Arabia have been like at least for three years. I remember uh, the previous prime minister, Iraqi prime minister, Mustafa Kadimi, had like brokered negotiations with these two countries. And it was like the, the deal was very close. What happened to me is like it seems to me both U.S. both sorry both Saudi and China gave a clear message to the U.S. Uh, Saudi Arabia actually like 
had a uh, two birds in one uh, stone. So uh, now they build a relationship with China, like they diversify their foreign policy. At the same time, they give a clear message to the US. Uh, you are not like, we can replace you like if if you if 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 you take your hands from us if you like if you if you don't want to you don't want to be a partner with us if you like uh, don't have a good relationship with our leadership we can always have a, a, a we can always find a new partner but i think this is a message like this is a more rhetoric than like real implications i, I at least for like very near time i don't believe like china will replace us at least not militarily. So if it's not military, militarily, uh, I don't think like the rest of the relationship matters as much as uh, it would if it was militarily. And for China, like from the Chinese perspective, it was uh, like a sort opportunity for them, like uh, an opportunity that they will uh, go to the headlines as peacemaker. And they did it. Like they feel the U.S., uh, the vacuum that the U.S., uh, left aside and like let's be honest the US doesn't have a very like good uh, concrete foreign policy in the Middle East for the last 15-20 years like uh, it changed dramatically from president to president uh, and like uh, none of the president despite the change none of the presidents actually have done like a concrete thing a concrete policy so I think uh, you uh, Saudi will still continue to prefer uh, U.S. as an ally, as a, a global hegemony. But, of course, it will not miss the opportunity to have uh, someone else as a backup. Yeah, Nick? Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree with that completely. You know, we, we shouldn't overstate the importance of it. Um, you know, I think it's, it's a step forward for both countries, but we're a long way from seeing these nations suddenly becoming close allies. Um, I think, like Hamdullah said, they were both very interested in reestablishing ties beforehand, which is really kind of the bare minimum that we're talking about here. And China was an easy partner to credit for that. You know, I'm from a, a marketing perspective, I could see that this is such a great win for them because every, they did all the work, you know, uh, Saudi and Iran did all the work and then China just got to come in and slap its name on it at the very end. So like from a marketing perspective, I love when something like that happens, but um <laughs> Uh, well, we got to remember that the U.S. is still an important uh, broker in the region. You know, remember things like the Abraham Accords from a few years ago. And I think this example really shows um, it, it's one example of how we should understand what a multipolar world actually means and what it's going to look like. Sometimes China is going to notch some diplomatic wins and the U.S. just needs to be ready for that and, and accept that. You know, it was a little ridiculous seeing all the the dooming and the pearl clutching of this is the end of U.S. power in the region. Pack it up, go home. We lost everybody. But it's really far from that. You know, Iran and Saudi walking back from the brink, that's an objectively good thing. Yeah. And we should be careful not to sabotage that just because we in the United States want to be at the head of the table when it happens. You know, China scored a diplomatic win this time, and it made the region a little more stable. Good for them. Now let's try to broker the next deal. And one, one final thing about this rapprochement, if you look at the regional developments that happens like in the last two, three years, like if it is a rapprochement period in the Middle East, everyone is making up with the rest. Like uh, we had like the four year long, uh, the end of crisis in 2021, Qatar with Saudi, UAE, Bahrain, Egypt, then uh, like Turkey is rapproching with uh, UAE, with Saudi, with Israel. So Israel, UAE normalized, like uh, the, become became the third 
uh, Arab country who normalized relations. So I think it it is very parallel to what's happening in the region. Like it's not exceptional case. It is not like something out of nothing, out of blue. So uh, so I think it, it it goes to the it goes parallel to the spirit of the time. So there's a couple of pivots that I want to take. Uh, one, just a quick comment, Hamdallah. You mentioned the rapprochement that's happening more broadly. I've recently read that some of the other, uh, some of the Arab leaders have actually been uh, sort of reaching out to Bashar al-Assad in Syria uh, to try and reestablish a relationship after everything that has happened there over over many years. So, so even that is happening in the region. Uh, what what about the conflict in in Yemen? Let me let me go to that briefly, and then I want to go back up to the the big geostrategic issues. Uh, did you hear anything about the conflict in in Yemen when you were in Saudi Arabia? Uh, that's clearly you know something that's taking place inside Yemen, but it's become essentially a proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Iran uh, over who is going to have the most influence in Yemen. Uh, Nick, what did you hear, or, or what have you read about, or? you know, your experiences uh, in the visit to the kingdom. Yeah, so um, international politics was one of the areas they didn't talk about too terribly <laughs> much, um, kind of understandably so. They wanted to avoid some of those really contentious topics. Um, but the conflict in Yemen was one thing that um, was brought up in one of our panel discussions. And, um, you know, it was, I guess, a little unfortunate because they kind of essentially mentioned that, like, they don't exactly expect uh, too much to change, at least right away in the in the short term or the near term. Um, they pretty much admitted that you know nobody really has too much of an incentive at this point to to come to peace, uh, at least in in the short term. Um, so I'd be a little bit uh, surprised if anything sort of changes in that regard, at least right now. Um, if something does change, I would think it would be because um, per- perhaps China here can play a little bit more of a role, simply because they have more credibility, especially with Iran, than we do. Uh, and they have more leverage than the United States does. You know, right now, um, we're really kind of maxed out on sanctions against Iran. And and of course, I bring up Iran because of the um, the connection with the Houthis, although it's important to remember that the Houthis are their own separate entity here. You right. know, they're not beholden to Iran. They don't take all of their orders from Iran, but they do uh, have some support there. So uh, really, the leverage there is is potentially on Iran to help bring the Houthis to the negotiating table. Uh, but of course, we have no credibility uh, with Iran because we terminated the Iran nuclear deal. Um, and so China could put its name on a new deal if that were possible, in part because it really hasn't tried to do anything yet in Middle East diplomacy. You know, they're kind of a blank slate. They've stayed neutral for so long, and now they're starting to maybe pick some sides here. So if this keeps up, we could see their own, uh, we could see them have to start to own some of these conflicts in a bigger way. And perhaps that diminishes their ability to broker power, to broker more deals like this in the future. But um I don't know. It's it's interesting to see. I'm I'm just not sure too much is going to change in Yemen, at least right now in the short term. And, and Hamdallah, we we just experienced a month ago the eighth anniversary of the Saudi Arabia led uh, coalition fight in Yemen. Uh, what, what's your perspective on that situation? It, it, it has been almost eight years. Like it began in 2015, and like with no clear uh, win from either parts, and also like. I am I am a bit skeptical also about like the organic link between the Houthi and Iran. Like, uh, of course, for now Iran supports Houthis, but I'm not sure if like Iran has the leverage uh, to like uh, to bring them even to the table. Uh, and from Saudi perspective, I really don't know what is the like the what is the like final aim 
in this military in this military operation for uae for example we know like uae is interested for several reasons like including uh, in addition to like being a partner with saudi arabia though not very sincere partner for this particular uh, uh, military they have like uh, strategic reasons they have to they they want to open their ports they want to be uh, they want to have a footprint in like in regional ports so uh, because of the strategic importance of uh, yemen uae wants to be there uh, though like uh, but the thing with saudi i don't know what is like they consider it as a national security issue but what is the uh, scenario that they will stop is it like uh, unitarily puppet regime that they will uh, put there or is it like a more like field state they want to have but one thing that uh, we uh, we heard uh, from in one of in one of our panels was about the humanitarian aspect of it and like i i i heard this before from someone else's uh, saudis are very disappointed actually from the western media and politicians in like not talking about the humanitarian aid that the Saudi have done, though uh, the the humanitarian tragedy is also something that they caused. But like <laughs> uh, it was told to us, like we 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 donated I don't know how many billion dollars in these eight years, but no one talks about the aid that they have done. Everyone is talking more about the uh, the the tragedy, the crisis. Uh, it. Good. So I think, like, uh, only to know what they think. Uh, I think they, they, many of many of the Saudi uh, leadership sees like they help the Yemenis, not they, uh, they, they, they are in the war. I, I, I can see this uh, from the UAE perspective too. Like when, when, when they talk about Yemen, uh, like they, they don't see it as a military operation, but more as a like. Uh, as a national security which was caused by Iran. Mm. Like, they, they prioritize Iran discourse than the fighting with the neighbor or, like, a regional peninsula power. Uh, so I want to pull back out into a bigger geostrategic discussion briefly and, and you know, kind of cover the Middle East. Uh, we've talked a little bit about China's influence in this uh, this agreement, this uh, norm- normalization of, uh, of relations between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Uh, I've read lots of different uh, analytical pieces from lots of different think tanks and from uh, university and college uh, professors who specialize in in studying China and and other parts of the world. Uh, One of the things we're hearing from China these days is, you know, we used to refer to the developing world, uh, you know, as, as the third world. Then it became the developing world, and we started calling it the global south I think it's still sort of considered the global south in 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 in, much, in many regards. Uh, China is is now courting heavily uh, all of these nations across what are called the global south, and uh, it's uh, it's not really the global south, but the global majority. And so they're trying yeah. to drive a wedge between Western policies led by the United States uh, and the global majority of people who really haven't maybe benefited from. Uh, the post-World War II uh, security framework and economic uh, organization of the world. And so there is a a choice now that countries can make between the China way, <laughs> where you have this sustained growth year after year after year, uh, or, you know, the American-led way. 
Uh, and the Middle East is obviously a hugely important part of this global economy uh, right now, principally because of oil and gas production. Uh, where, where do the two of you see this happening in the Middle East region? How is it influencing politics and alignment in the Middle East for the countries of the Middle East between do they look to the West, you know, America and Europe, or do they look to the East, uh, to, to, to Beijing? Uh, Hamdallah, we'll start with you. Uh, I want to go back to Nick's comment on uh, what will happen if we live in a multipolar world. I think uh, like having these two options itself uh, is quite like uh, give quite good leverage for most of the regional powers. Uh, as as I have said before, like I don't think like China uh, is like an hegemonic power at least for the next one or two decades. But being able to like uh, play with it against the U.S. normally, like U.S. was uh, like more at dictating the policy to the regional powers, which like uh, exclusively or uh, implicitly you would accept it. Now, like I think that will be second or third option. Like we see this with the uh, with the recent uh, Russian-Ukraine uh, crisis. Like not every regional power uh, is following what U.S. says uh, uh, step by step. This doesn't mean like they support Russia, but like uh, they they consider their priority, their national priorities first, then like U.S. or Western or European uh, bills, let's say. Like, uh, I, I see this like uh, when, we, when I compare my gas bills or electricity bills with 2020, 2019, it's tripled. Uh, but uh, I don't think, like, I think Nick will also have, uh, will have his views on this, but I don't think, like, uh, Russia, Saudi Arabia or like Qatar as a gas or oil import, exporter have to care too much about like the bill of British household. Yeah, no, I, I think that's exactly right. And you've kind of uh, taken some of the words right out of my mouth, I think. Um, <laughs> although I would, uh, John, I would kind of counter what China is saying a little bit with one, it's a very convenient you know, marketing push for them to say the global majority um, but to that, I think that the, the you know, Western-led order after World War II, as it's called, I think that has benefited uh, the vast majority of these countries around the world. It's just it's been very uneven, both here in the United States and abroad. Uh, the benefits of that has been very uneven. But, um, you know, I think Hamdal is actually absolutely right where, you know, if we force them to pick a side, they're, they're going to go with probably China in that case. If we if we sit there and say that, uh, you know, you have to do all this stuff like you have to like we ask Saudi Arabia to cut oil production um, just because it punishes Russia for the war in Ukraine. Well, you know, we, we can sit here with our, our moral arguments and say, you know, well, people are dying in Ukraine. They're being threatened in Taiwan. And many of these countries are going to sit back and say, well, people are dying in my own country and I can't afford the costs of these sanctions on people like Russia and China. So all this is to say that we can't force these countries you know, to pick a side. Uh, we, we have to instead find ways to encourage them to go along with our plans rather than to just simply scold them for not doing what we want. We have to find those incentives uh, rather than just say, well, you should be on board with us because we say so. Yeah, it's a it's a it's an interesting world out there. I mean, we've heard this term, you know, brick and, and now the BRICS, uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China mm -hmm. and now South Africa. 
that they have actually been working collaboratively to sort of build uh, maybe an alternative currency to the dollar for international business transactions. And I just read last night that there are 17 nations that are actually applying to become part of the BRICS membership. Uh, so to your point, Hamdala, there's a uh, there's sort of a, a a rebirth of the non-aligned movement to a certain extent. India, you know, being a, a strong leader in there, the the biggest by population uh, and by participation in elections, the largest, the biggest democracy on the planet. Uh, but there's a lot of other things that are happening in the world that are changing from uh, sort of a unipolar world that we have at the end of the Cold War to a multipolar world or a non-aligned uh, part of the world that can use uh, the competition between the two major powers uh, to their benefit. We only have about 10 minutes left. I can't believe how fast this show goes by. Every week I'm just I'm blown away. Uh, I do want to ask, uh, Hamdala, there's, an, there's a very important election coming up in Turkey here very shortly, or Turkey, as it says, as the new, uh, the new uh, name says. What, what is your prediction for this, for this uh, election, uh, what, and what are the main factors uh, that uh, people in Turkey are, are considering as they, as they ramp up to the election? Like, uh, from Saudi perspective speaking, like, I think uh, uh, they, like Mohammed bin Salman had a long issue with Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Like, he was, uh, I think he considered him as a rival for a while. Then, like, he got very angry to him for some other reasons, of course. Uh, but uh, after the rapprochement last year, uh, uh, they didn't take like very concrete steps Im- immediately. But two, three weeks ago, I have seen a news, but I haven't checked if if they if they have done it. Like uh, there was a uh, agreement between the central banks of Saudi Arabia and Turkey. So actually, they they, they had a swap agreement for five billion dollars, which was considered as a like as a support to the government. But I think in general, uh, like most of the other regional powers. Uh, Saudi is also sit and wait uh, until the mid-May. Uh, they don't want to like take a part on any uh, domestic issue about re- related to election, like as uh, uh, they expect the race to be very heated. So they uh, they don't want to be they don't want to support the wrong side. To be honest, like uh, uh, so, I think like. From the Saudi or from the regional perspective, uh, they cannot anticipate what would happen if the if the uh, opposition come. As like one of the most heated topic is the refugee uh, issue, uh, and the, the, like Turkey's uh, Turkey's politics in Syria. So I think. Uh, at least the, for the current government, they know how to play with it. But for 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 the opposition, it is one of the exams, like the test they will have. We will see. I, I also wonder how how will they do it in case if they win. Nick, any any thoughts on the upcoming Turkish elections? Um, yeah, I think it's going to be uh, quite an interesting show. Especially, you know, a lot of people assumed that uh, Erdogan would probably potentially run away with it and then of course the very dramatic earthquakes happened and uh, the you know poor response of the government since then um so now it's 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 hard to predict exactly what's going to happen i think um it's interesting you pointed out a recent article uh asking you know will there even be you know a transition of power uh should erdogan lose um and you know unfortunately i think we've seen that in, in a lot of these cases 
uh, they're not necessarily going to go quietly uh, should they lose the ballot box and, mm-hmm. and potentially, you know, they'll, they'll end up uh, being ousted anyway, but uh, it's, it's not as uh, seamless as a process as it used to be, unfortunately. So we're down to about seven minutes remaining. I just want to ask, uh, there's two more questions I want to ask. Uh, so from each of you, uh, Hamdala, we'll start with you. I'll give you like two minutes. Uh, final thoughts on your visit to Saudi Arabia. What else did you learn that truly surprised you that you'd like to share with our listeners? Uh, I want to go back to our trip to Al-Ula, actually. Al-Ula was like, uh, is a very ancient city and also was very popularized like with the rapprochement with the Qatar because the agreement was signed there. If you remember Al-Ula Summit, the GCC Summit was made in Al-Ula. Uh, like, uh, Al-Ula apparently is a very historic ancient city and uh, it, is, it is built actually by the, by the same civilization, the Nabataean civilization of the Petra, the Jordan Petra. And like the, uh, the tour that we have taken and the archaeological uh, research that they still continue to do uh, convinced me that they, like, uh, they want to have uh, tourism more than Hajj and Umrah. Like, uh, and also, like we were speaking about this with Nick, the the explicit uh, emphasis on Hajj and Umrah as a new tourism on one side, and like on the other side, like alternative tourism to this, like was something that was like uh, I was not expecting. Uh, like there were there were explicit figures, like I don't know, thirty million people uh, for annual Umrah uh, visitors every year. They were expecting by 2030 or something like that. I like the figures might be wrong. Sorry. Uh, but like, I remember like uh, there was, there were some figures. So I think this was one of the things that I want to close with that. Like uh, they want to use every opportunity, religious, non-religious, Islamic, non-Islamic to present Saudi Arabia as any regional, cultural or touristic hub alternatives maybe to Dubai or to Jordan, to Turkey, to Egypt. Like, I think this is one of the things that I want to have my last come up. Heavy on the soft power. I like it. Nick? Yeah, no, and and, uh, and Alhamdulillah, you were actually able to go on the Umrah, which was quite exciting for you. Um, you know, the Umrah, of course, being the, uh, so everyone knows the Hajj, you know, the great pilgrimage to Mecca, the Umrah, of course, is uh, similar, you know, going to Mecca, but just not during the actual Hajj, Hajj period. And I, th- I did think that was very interesting, the way they framed it more as a tourism opportunity, as a money-making uh, type of endeavor. You know, it because um, there's lots of ways that Saudi Arabia is going to be able to make money. And I just thought this is a little bit of a missed opportunity that you should be presenting this as the great equalizer, because that is what the Hajj is, is, you know, every person, every Muslim around the world is equal, uh, regardless of political or economic or social standing there. So why not emphasize how this is the great equalizer around the world versus, well, we're going to make a lot of money because a lot of people are going to come to the to Mecca for the Hajj and the Umrah. So I thought that was a little bit odd um, in that regard. Um, but one of the really big things I wanted to focus on uh, is, is just the extent of the social changes and the political realities. You know, things are moving really fast. Nearly everyone is, is on board with it. Um, and they approve of the way things are going. And that's enough for most of the Saudis that we saw there. Uh, we, of course, had the honor of speaking with Hoda from the uh, Shura Council, you know, similar to Congress, although, of course, uh, the crown prince and the, and the king have the final say in everything. Uh, 
Uh, but Hoda mentioned that the concern in most of Saudi uh, society is not towards democratic representation, but of good governance. If the government is running things well, then why would they take a chance to overhaul that entire political system? You know, after all, one could certainly say that American-style democracy doesn't look super appealing all, all the time these days. Uh, so that's something I think everyone should kind of take away from this trip is we think everyone around the world strives for a representative style of democracy like what we have. And that's not always the case. You know, sometimes people are fine if the system is running good enough. So it sounds to me like what you saw over there was a benevolent monarchy in action. Uh, it certainly likes to present as benevolent. Um, there were definitely some things that were great and that could be uh, celebrated, but certainly some things to work on as well. So we'll have to sort of wrap it up there. Uh, Hamdala Bejar and Nick Hayen, who both recently visited the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia as guests of the Middle East Policy Council. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, are there any resources you might highlight for our listeners? Uh, Nick, you, the Middle East Policy Council, what's their website? Yes, so uh, that's at MEPC.org. They also have a website called TeachMideast.org. That's great for getting to know some of these countries better. All right, Nick, thanks so much for your time today. And Hamdala Bejar, uh, joining us from the University of Exeter in the United Kingdom, finishing up your uh, your doctorate. What's your, uh, what's your uh, doctoral the- uh, paper on? Uh, National Identity of the United Arab Emirates, the identity politics of the Emirates and uh, how they construct the national identity. And when do you defend that? Like, I am hoping to finish it, like, in one or two months, hopefully. Like, All right. I, I am hoping to, like, yeah, I am, like, I am in corrections season now. Like, I am hoping to finish it very soon. And you're heading back uh, to Turkey to teach, is that right? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, to very close to the uh, the country we discussed, very close to Russia. I am, I am returning uh, to Trabzon. Karadeniz Technical University, Black Technical University. Uh, yeah. Well, congratulations on that. Thank, Thank you, so you both again for, for joining us today. And that closes this edition of National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Uh, Thank you for joining us today here on KYMN Radio. Look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for being a listener to National Security This Week. Have a great finish to week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns with host John Olson. It's brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check their website, cybersecuritysummit.org, for a listing of their upcoming webinar series. 